Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by ourselves. Hey, I just wanted to take a quick minute to talk about our print shop. Uh, We have my photography, some of Garrett Morrison's photography in our pro shop at proshop.thefriedag.com. There you will find a photography tab. We have paper prints, we have frame paper prints, and we also have metal prints. Uh, Just to give you an idea, those metal prints are really unique, bright prints that will spruce up any room as well as your traditional paper print and frame paper print. So we have a ton of courses, including this week's Ryder Cup venue, Whistling Straits, on there. Others included Bally Neal, Kingsley Club, Sand Valley, Pasa Tiempo, Prairie Dunes, among many other stream song. We have we have a ton of courses up there, ton of different prints, ton of options. If you're looking for something else that you may have seen us post, uh, feel free to reach out on the Contact Us page. We are doing 20% off. That's not an insignificant amount of money off. And use the code RC2020. That's RC2020 for 20% off. Today's episode is a conversation about Whistling Straits between myself and Garrett Morrison, our managing editor. So we talk all things Whistling Straits, the venue for this uh, year's Ryder Cup, and we get in the nitty gritty there, and uh, it's it's a good conversation. Later this week, we will have another episode that uh, is a five things episode where I will host a colleague uh, in the media space. I think I've got an Irishman coming on. He's he can be a little surly and uh, hasn't given me really a straight answer. So I think I have an Irishman coming on. He's been on the pod before. We'll see if he uh, if he follows through with that, but. Without further ado, here is Garrett and I's conversation on Whistling Straits. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. All right, so Andy, you were just at Whistling Straits. Uh, yes, yeah, it was their uh, quick trip, just just there to shoot the course. I didn't uh, didn't play, but walked walked both nines, and uh, good to see it again. I, I've been there a few times in my lifetime, so you know it's always been a big uh, big draw. Growing up, I mean, Kohler, the Kohler Resort was like the destination place, the the one that you always dreamed of going to when you were a kid because it was like the nice the real nice course being being a midwesterner like that was the the resort of the midwest uh growing up Ch- chicago's riviera maybe you could call it uh i don't know i mean <laughs> you got you got lake geneva uh, you got lake geneva area is a big chicagoland and then you got new buffalo's like the hamptons of, of chicagoland but kohler was this just like five-star luxe resort that popped up and, uh, you know, from a golfing sense, you know, they were hosting at Black Wolf. They hosted that U.S. Women's Open in 97. And then all of a sudden the PGA started to go to Whistling Straits after they built that. And it was, you know, 
that was right when I was getting into golf those years and you know, it became an aspirational place. So it's a, uh, you know, for any kid that grew up in the Midwest around my age, it's a, it's a place that you always dreamed of playing. And I've been lucky to get out there a few times in my lifetime. And, uh, you know, I still have pictures from the first time I went out there, uh, with, with my family and, you know, I think like, you know, when you look at the whole place architecturally, there's some things that you him and haw about, but at the same time, this is a a place historically that will always be remembered for putting Wisconsin on the map as a golf tourism place and really starting this renaissance of, of golf tourism in the Midwest, uh, in the upper Midwest specifically with with obviously it and now there's Sand Valley and Aaron Hills, all of the state. So, you know, Whistling Straits, but more so Black Wolf Run was the start of that with with Herb Kohler's kind of vision for this place. Right. Yeah. The Straits course at Whistling Straits was the second course at Kohler, I believe. Right. After Black I think, Wolf well, Run. I think, well, Black Wolf Run has two courses. Okay. And they had the, the originally it was one course, but then they split the course into two when they expanded it. Okay. Um, then they built straights on this, which isn't, it's not connected. Like, you know, Black Wolf Run's really tied in close to coal, is in Kohler and is tied into the resort really closely. But then Whistling Straits is, is a good 10, 15 minutes from the resort in Haven, I think is actually technically the town. So the Straits course was built in 1998 or it opened in 1998, I guess I should say. It hosted the PGA Championship in 2004, 2010, and 2015. But obviously, the reason we're talking about it today is that it is going to host the Ryder Cup coming up here in a couple of weeks. And um, you were up there to photograph it. You definitely saw some infrastructure, <laughs> some healthy uh, build-outs. Sure. Yeah. I'd say, you know, I, uh, I haven't been to a Ryder Cup since uh, Medina in 2012. And having been to numerous major championships in in the last few years, there's just really nothing like a Ryder cup build out the the infrastructure. I, I remember when I was at Kiwa this winter talking with uh, one of the tournament directors down there, I was like, why does not Kiwa ever host a Ryder cup? And he was like, they can't, they don't have the space. You know, the, the infrastructure needs for a Ryder cup are insane. And it, the build out is extraordinary. You just look at, I mean, the amount of time and it, it just reminds you how much money, is on the line with the Ryder Cup and why it was not played last year. <laughs> so so they are they are ready for the crowds. Um you mentioned Whistling Straits's importance in the history of Wisconsin golf. Now, people know Wisconsin as a premium golf destination. It is one of the places to go in America for outstanding golf. And Whistling Straits really stands as one of the founding moments of that. Black Wolf Run also very important, but I feel like Whistling Straits' debut was was even more high profile than Black Wolf Runs, partly because of this incredible location that the Straits course has. Yeah, it. I mean, it's right on Lake Michigan. It, it, the one thing I will say is like there's some really interesting ground along Lake Michigan in different parts of Illinois and Wisconsin. At this part of the Wisconsin, it is dead flat. It's just dead flat up to a bluff, you know. So. Everything there is created. Everything's artificial. And it's, it's when you think about when you see the adjacent land to the golf course, it's amazing what's there. You just look at it and you say, Jesus Christ, like, how did this happen? Um, and uh, the, the golf course, though, is completely artificially made. It is right on Lake Michigan. 
I think one of the things that I was thinking about just recently, uh, you know, when I was up there was just about how much coastline, like it's not ocean coast, but Lake Michigan, a lot of people come to Chicago and is like, what ocean is that? You know, that's a common thing for out of towners to say, which is kind of funny, but Lake Michigan is kind of like, you know, an ocean in, in a sense of how, how it looks. You can't see the other side of the lake and the amount of coastline that it occupies is tremendous. And I'm not sure how it would compare to a lot of places, but there's more coastline than Pebble and definitely more coastline than most of the courses abandoned. Sheep Ranch might be able to contend with it in terms of pure coastline, but there's a lot of holes right on Lake Michigan, which obviously gives stunning views throughout. It is a um, it's a place that like no matter how many times you've been there, you kind of walk like with like this like turn, like you're always kind of angled a little bit because you're looking at the lake to your left or right, depending on which way you're walking. I believe there are eight holes along the coast. But in addition to those, the holes that are inland have views of the ocean because of the way that the course was kind of built on stair steps, right? Yeah. So you, the the fairways inland are, are higher, so you, you tend to be able to see... I, I said ocean before, I think. You oh, can see the lake. <laughs> yeah. See, I, I even lived next to Lake Michigan at one point. It really <laughs> does look like an ocean. But um, <laughs> in any case, you can, you can, you can, you can see the lake at uh, a lot of different points on the course. And part of that's because of how that site was reshaped. I believe when Dye arrived that it was more of a sheer cliff right next to the yeah. lake. And, like and he moved a lot of that dirt from the top of the cliffs inland so that the holes that are on the lake are lower. You see that especially on the front nine, like the par threes jump to mind. Those kind of sit down and especially like the seventh hole sits into like a little cavity that's cut out. It's the lowest hole in terms of like proximity to the shoreline. A lot of the back nine plays a little bit higher, but that definitely is the case for some of the par threes are where he set those in. And now that you mention it, you think about it and it kind of makes sense. Like you scrape out stuff and that's a perfect spot to just nook in a little par three, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and the par threes all play along the coast. And that obviously is a big thing that the Kaisers stress with with you know their oceanfront courses is if you go to Sheep Ranch, there's it's no coincidence that every par three <laughs> plays either directly at the ocean or along the ocean. Like that that's uh that's not by coincidence. And and Whistling Straits has, you know, the all four par threes right on Lake Michigan. So you know, it was, it was pretty clever routing how he did it because he has all this coastline, right? And all the interest, you know, there's not a lot of interest to be gained in inland because the land was dead flat and the coast was really the star of the show. That's probably why Herb Kohler bought the property was just because of the coastline on, on Lake Michigan. So it's it's interesting how he, he built the course. Obviously, the clubhouse sits back from the lake significantly, and that's where 18 ends and one tees off, like just like any traditional course, but one gets you out there and the way he oriented both the back and the front nine. So 10 and 18 and one and nine are holes that go out to the coast and back from the coast, you know, and everything else there is oriented in a figure eight. So there's two figure eights on each side, you know, on the South side, you got the front nine on the North side, you got the back nine and each is a figure eight. So what it does is you play a lot in the, case of the front nine you play above the holes that are along the coast but then you cross over at a par three which is the third hole and then you get on the coast for four five lines back and then 
six plays above the coast, and then seven, another par three, gets you back on the coast. So it's a really cool kind of figure eight when you think about it. And then eight is obviously right along the coast, beautiful par four, and then nine plays back to the clubhouse. But then 10, same thing. 10, you play out, 11 plays above the coast, and then 12 brings you onto the coast for 13, and then 14, 15 play above, and then 16, a par five gets you back on. But 15 kind of necks in to right by 12, and that's that crossing point of the of the figure eight. There's an interesting comparison to the Kiowa routing. Yes, yes. I was thinking about that while I was out there. Because Kiowa is two loops. Mm-hmm. And so there are sequences of holes that all run along on the back nine, all run along the beach, and they're kind of all on one side. At Whistling Straits, the lakefront holes are distributed out across the nines in different ways. And so you visit the lakefront at different points during the nine instead of visiting it all at once. It's almost like, you know, obviously Whistling Straits was built after Kiowa, and it's almost like an evolution because it is, in a way, a little bit more sophisticated because it, it becomes it becomes more of a treat, and then you leave, you come back. Like, you, it, created, it creates these gathering points, which for anybody that are going, you know, Ryder Cups are a zoo. It's really hard to get around. You kind of have to pick your spot. There are two gathering points right at the cross sections of these figure eights where it's the sixth green, the second green, the third green, and the seventh green are all in the same spot. There's a grandstand. I was thinking the best spot might be up in the top of that grandstand because you'd be able to see everything from there. But that figure eight creates a concentration of energy and a a place where everything's going to be happening when they're playing the front nine. So if I was spectating, I might think about going out there if I'm going to catch the front nine and then booking my way over to the back nine and getting to that same figure eight point where everything crosses. Cause there you have 12, 11, 15 and 16 right there where you can watch a lot of action and getting a good high perch right there where you're going to be able to see a lot of shots. So in that sense, it's advantageous if you know what you're looking and where you're trying to get for the Ryder cup. But like those figure eights make those really concentrated pockets of the golf course because going out to either end is a real haul but those figure eights are really cool because they you know they kind of give you you get a look ahead when you're playing and then also look back when you're coming back at you know you get to think about hey what happened on that short par 312 like when you're on 15 like oh, i can't believe i hit it in the water there or something you know yeah you mentioned the par threes earlier all of them are along the lake so does that mean that they're sort of repetitive or are there ways that die managed to distinguish them from each other? Yeah. So two play in one direction, two play in the other direction, two play South two play North. Uh, the first par three you encounter is the third hole. It's got a really big green and it angles you're playing South and it, and it's right on the ocean or on the geez, on the lake. And, uh, it angles, see, there you go. Yeah. Lifelong Chicagoan right here. Exactly. It's a it's a middle length par four. So they they vary in distance. You know, you've got two mid length par four or par threes and three and seven, three being a little bit shorter than seven. And then you've got a long par three and 17 and a 12 is a short par three, very short par three. So you have good variety in terms of of the distances. They're all relatively flat. None of them play significantly uphill or downhill, but they all have unique kind of green 
complexes and green surrounds that that vary them. So the third has a really beautiful like wavy green that has contours that kind of cut in on diagonals throughout the green, which create a lot of very cool pin positions. And it opens from right to left. Uh, going back, you know, the seventh, a little bit longer of a par three that is benched right. I mean, it's so intimidating right along the lake. And that one opens from left to right. So it opens the kind of the opposite shot shape. So the first, you know, third hole, they look, they're very similar in the sense they're both mid, mid-length par threes one opens from the right to right to left the other opens from left to right uh and then you go to the back nine 12 is a wild green it it is a very cool unique short par three i i think it, in terms of the golf course probably probably my favorite hole on the golf course right on the lake um and it's mainly because of the green it's a green that i haven't ever seen a green like it Maybe a Hoopies A-hole green might be the only thing that I've seen that has a similar even flair to it. It's law. It's kind of very narrow, and it, it kind of snakes along these bunkers. So you have like a front left side that's short left, and then it kind of runs on a diagonal and then goes serpentines all the way back to a back little pin that's like sits out on a on the peninsula. And... They better put the pin there, is all I'm going to say. Like, I'm going to be extremely disappointed if there's not a pin back there. Um, but in in it, it has the boldest contours of any green, which you would expect with a short par three. Like, one of the things you can do with short par threes is you can push the contours and make it a little bit more extreme because it's not as big of a journey to get there. So this green has a lot of very sharp contours. And if you're not in the right section of it, it's going to be a really hard two putt. And then furthermore, the way it angles with it being long, right, short, left, that's really tough for right-handers because your misses are short, right, or long left, which are both in both cases trouble. Have you told me about 17? Oh, last one. I mean, so you get like a gettable par five, 16, uh, right before it. And then 17 and 18 are complete bears. I mean, I think it it's about 220, 230 from the back. And this hole is pushed up on the edge of the of the lake. Very steep drop off to the left. There's space left, but it's nowhere you want to be. It's almost like, you know, if the pin's left, you miss left. It's almost a guaranteed bogey. Very severe penalty for missing over there. On the right, there's a big towering bunker that kind of obscures the right half of the green. And the only way to get anywhere near that pin is with a high fade from, you know, 220, 230. It's a really tough shot to hit. I mean, most people are just going to be aiming for the middle of the green, trying to hit the green. But, you know, it's a longer, narrower, but it's got that little right kind of pocket where you can put a middle pin right. So you've got really interesting pins everywhere that you look on that green. If it's short left, they have tees on the right and left sides. So you could it could be a little bit more right, which... When you use that right pin, a lot of people would automatically assume the left tee is a little bit uh, harder because you're right on the lake there. But that right tee, what it does is it brings your where you're going to miss long left becomes the lake, you know, as opposed to like you can shade from that tee that's pressed on the on the lake. It's easier shot to just bail right. It becomes harder to bail right when they have the tee right, which I think they're going to use that right tee most of the time. And it brings that the lake much more into your your shot pattern. So front left, obviously you have to deal with the 
with the left side and, and the lake. Back left, you have to deal with the left side. And then middle right, you have to deal with that really, really gnarly volcano bunker short right. So we've talked about the par threes. What are some other holes that you think people should watch out for at the Ryder Cup? Yeah, so I, you know, this is a, a rarity. Pete Dye was like not a big drivable par four guy. No, he wasn't. Or short par four necessarily. Like that, it was like one of the things you notice at a lot of his courses. Very few drivable par fours. Yeah, and in fact, quick story here: when they built a drivable par four at TPC Sawgrass on the twelfth hole, when the PGA Tour decided to make that a drivable par four. This was before Pete Dye had passed away, but he he wasn't in public much at that point. Alice Dye, his wife, was still speaking occasionally in public. And what she said bluntly was, my husband did not like short par fours that much. He didn't really like drivable par fours. This is not really representative of something that he would want to do. She said that about the new 12th hole at TPC Sawgrass. But we do see a couple of instances of short par fours at Whistling Straits, which is interesting. Yeah. And I think like one of them, like 10 is shorter than it would be because of some hospitality. You know, I think that T is going to be up a little because of hospitality. You know, it's an enticing drivable par four for somebody like Bryson, uh, the really long hitters. But then like the predominant drivable par four is the six. It's, It's a really cool hole because of the green. The green has like two very distinct sections. Like, and I think everybody that's watched tournament golf out there has probably seen it, but it's almost like uh it's almost like a, a pair of glasses, right? With your right and left eye, and then there's a bunker that cuts in and is like your nose piece of your glasses. And um the left side's very inviting, has kind of a slope that kicks things in there that is a very inviting pin to go for the green because you can miss to the left and you've got a really easy chip. Things get a little bit more difficult when the pin's over on the right side because, you know, there's no option. There's no way you could carry it there, fly it there, and have it stop. You know, the question is, will these guys prefer hitting that bunker shot from just right around the green, or are they going to lay up back into the layup area and hit a wedge? Because it's a really small target. Like, it's not necessarily an easy wedge shot to that right pin. And the left, the left, I think when the pin's over on the left, you're going to see everybody go for that because it's not a long hole. I, I think almost everybody in this Ryder Cup will be able to hit to uh, get close to it. So that's that's a really compelling hole. And obviously, in the cadence of things, it comes after a par five. So it's it's part of the section of the golf course that you really expect to score. the The tenth hole I I previously mentioned, but that'll be played up a couple tees. Again, if you lay up, it's not easy because you never have a a visible shot unless you get up by the green because the green sits so high up that you're never really going to get close enough that you can see the green. So then it brings in this kind of awkward wedge where everybody struggles a little bit when they can't see what they're hitting it at. Um, You can see the pin, but you have no depth perception. And there's nothing good left there. So that's the... The thing with hitting driver, if you hit it left, you could be in a really bad spot. And then the final one is the uh, the 14th hole. Everybody probably forgets about the 14th hole. I think it's a really nice little hole and really like maybe one of the most slept on holes out there. It's a, it's a blind tee shot and you can play outright or you can take on a big swath of bunkers on the left. And if you take on that, you could definitely hit the green. Like I, you know, as the crow flies, it's much shorter than the yardage on the card. 
And I, I would expect a lot of guys to be dry, trying to go for that green off the tee. And you can't see it from the from the tee, so it's completely blind. But you can lay up out to the right, and it winds around the bunker. But it leaves you with like a wedge shot from probably not the flattest lie because the, the, the fairway banks pretty hard right to left to a green that, you know, it's not it's shallow and wide. It's not the easiest green to hit a wedge into. So you've described a couple of greens so far. It, it seems like one of the most memorable characteristics of this course is that the, the greens are really varied and some of them have pretty wild shapes. So what, what are some patterns that you noticed among the whistling straights greens? Yeah, so I think one of the things that Dai did really well for his era was build really compelling greens that had variety in them. You know, that I think that's one of the things you see in that era of architecture was the greens were a little bit dumbed down and bland compared to Golden Age. And I think Dai had kind of the most spunk out of everybody then. And with them, what you see is nonlinear contours. So what I mean by that is this era was so line oriented, right? So if you built a tier, it was a straight tier. All of dies kind of go on diagonals and they have ups and downs kind of like you'd see of a Maxwell roll. It's not just like an up and flat. They all have like kind of backsides and front sides to the slopes. And I think that's what makes them really fun is they create these really small sections, whether it's a big green or a smaller green, all of them have very distinct sections and you have to hit a really good shot to get in those sections. And if you're not in those sections, it becomes like, how do I two putt? Not how do I make this putt? So it really rewards great iron play. So one of the ideas going into this Ryder Cup that seems to be popular right now is that this course is going to strongly prioritize distance. What do you think about that? I agree with that. I mean, distance and iron play. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, in, when you hit it further, you get shorter irons, which really helps your proximity. You know, especially when you're talking about the best players in the world. So, as Joe Lamagna said on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, one of the things is is why distance is so important is some of the fairways get wider the further you go. This is a resort golf course, so there's some really generous spots on it. Not necessarily fairway, if we could talk about that later, but corridor-wise, it's pretty wide in spots. And there's certain areas where they pinch. And I think when it was designed, the areas that that they pinch are where the best players in the world hit it. And now that's where they can hit it past. And it, it does show its age a little in that in that sense, right? Is where all the trouble is the longest hitters hit it past it now, which is, and that's also why some of these holes are drivable par fours or close to drivable par fours that weren't when they were designed. Yeah. One of the uh, things that stood out to me when I was reading the chapter in Pete Dye's book, Bury Me in a Pop Bunker, that had a few pages about the building of Whistling Straits is that he and the people who are building the course, the rest of the people, were very much thinking about the distance explosion that was happening at that time. This course was built in the late 90s. Uh, it opened in 1998. And so this was right when the pros were getting longer and longer. And some of those advances that have really defined this next era of golf were first coming in. You know, the the solid core balls that everybody was playing, the metal woods, you know, the game was changing. And Dai knew that. And on many holes on this course, you can see him trying to respond to that in various ways. 
you know, going back to the the prevalence of short par fours on this course, I don't have anything in particular to support this theory, but I suspect that those holes were ones where Dai was thinking, well, the longer players are not necessarily going to have a big advantage on this hole. Yeah, I I think, but I think also like what the wedge shot into that six, for example, when the pins on the right, that's not an easy shot, you know? Sure, you can, if you're dialed in, you can hit it. And one of the things that I think about a lot is when the pin's over there on that side and it's public play, how how do people even play that? Like, how do, you know, there, there's got to be some serious ping pong that happens. The rounds are slow out there, right? Oh, glacial. <laughs> that, that's one of the things about this course is that it's, it is a resort course and there is some accounting for the average player, but it is still an incredibly hard course for the average golfer to play. Yeah, I, I mean, I would agree. I would agree with that. It'll be interesting to see how they play some of these holes, particularly in an alternate shot, when the when the stakes are a little bit higher and there's less. You know, you don't have the insurance of your partner. I think, like in best ball, you'll see guys bombs away because one of the two of them isn't going to probably make worse than par if they both hit it up there. Like one might get a bad break and a bad lie in the bunker, but both of them won't. So one of the things that really stands out about this course is the shaping style. You know, there's a lot of really bold shaping out there. There are many, many, many bunkers. I believe uh, Ron Witten of Golf Digest once counted them, and <laughs> <laughs> which which must have taken a while. And and his conclusion was that the eighth hole alone has 102 bunkers, and that there are about 967 bunkers on the course in total. They're just all over the place, and and a lot of them have these kind of, you know, bold lips to them. That there's some of those volcano bunkers that that you saw a lot of, uh, ended up seeing a lot of at at Dai's French Lick course, and and so Kiowa has some too. Kiowa does have them, yeah. Kiowa, the fewer of them at Whistling Straits, they have they have made it and multiplied. Um, yeah. <laughs> they are all over the place. So, what are some of your thoughts about the style of shaping that was used at this course? I, I mean, you could clearly tell that the the attempt here was to create Ireland golf in Wisconsin. Yeah, and Kohler was specific about that. He said to Pete Dye, I want this to look like Balabunion. I don't know if this looks anything like Balabunion, but that was certainly the intention to create a Irish Dunes look at this course. You know, there's some of that. I think it's a little sharp for that. It doesn't look natural because of how sharp some of the lines are. That being said, I, I do like sympathize slightly because you look, especially with the drone, you're flying around, you can see the land right next door. Or if you're driving out of the property, you turn right or left, how flat it is. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing. There was nothing. Yeah. So, you know, like he went from nothing to what it is. And that's a, a remarkable feat of, of engineering just to do that. But I would say, yeah, they're they're abrupt. It's it's overdone in a lot of places, over the top in a lot of places. But it does like you do play it, and you you know, as somebody who grew up in the Midwest, going to Lake Michigan, it's unlike anything else you've seen. Which you know, it does have intrinsic value. I mean, this is extreme maximalism. This is as maximal as you can get. Is whistling. I mean, I, I, I don't know how many more places had more maximal projects than this place. You know, and, and something there is something about the feel of departing. Like, there's obviously sense of place, but there is also a form of art of departing 
the world as you know it and going to a different place. And that's more of what this is than, hey, this is not the the Sheboygan, Wisconsin coast. It's not that. It's it's just, it's a make-believe place. So what are some other courses that are kind of like this, that that take that approach to place? I guess Shadow Creek is the ultimate example. Arcadia Bluffs has some of this going on, yeah. which is, you know, just on the other side of Lake Michigan. Um, and and do you do you think that's the right approach on these kinds of properties? I mean, I don't know how compelling of a golf course you could have built without moving much earth there. Yeah, it's dead flat. You know, like it would have been cool because you would have been staring at the lake. You know, that's always a good thing. But I think one of the things that it does so effectively for a, a resort course, people are only going to play Whistling Straits. You know, most people will only play Whistling Straits once in their life if they get there. You know, that's the reality. And one of the things that it does is it will give you a lasting memory. No matter who you are, no matter how many golf courses you've seen, the place will make you feel something. Some, you know, I I have a lot of qualms about some of the things out there um, with the stuff that people don't want to talk about, which is drainage. Catch basins. But... I remember the first time I played it when I was in, I think I was in college. You know, you're just taken aback that the place exists. I don't know what the right place is for it. It's obviously destroyed a landscape that was there. I don't think the landscape that was there was really that special. It's like almost like amusement park golf in the sense of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I think the design's really good in a lot of ways. Like the routing's really clever. There are a lot of like really cool holes and, you know, they created this landscape. So there's, you know, you go back and forth. Yeah. My biggest issue with it centers around the way the golf course is presented, given what the intention and the vision for the golf course was. You know, I think it's it's overwatered. You know, the fairway widths are, are a joke. You know, they haven't pushed them back out since they hosted the first PGA. So you, you get a lot of what you had at Kiwa where you have these wide corridors but narrow fairways. You know, and I think that's that's one of the things. It's a resort. So that's why the way it's maintained, which isn't necessarily right or wrong. Like Banded Dunes is a resort and it's maintained one way, and Whistling Strait Straits is a very different resort and it's maintained this way. You you can imagine that Pete Dye would prefer this course to play faster than it does. Yeah. It plays very slow. Um, and, and, and that's the complete opposite of the way it should play if, if it wants to be an Irish Lynx course. Yeah. In, in terms of courses that emulate a sand dune environment, it feels a little bit dated because we have examples like King's Barns, where the effort to emulate Lynx land was quite a bit more successful. If you're trying to come up with an imitation, Castle Stewart. something that really feels like it, Castle Stewart. At the same time... I'm not sure if it's better to try to fool people into thinking that they're on a piece of Lynx land or if it's better to just create something weird and wonderful and theme park-like, which Whistling Straits is. You know, if it was unsuccessful in imitating Balabunyan, Whistling Straits isn't necessarily a failure because of that. It has done something else, and it's pretty unique. Yeah, I mean, it is completely unique. There's nothing else like it. 
in a way, it's like it's a piece of art because it was completely created. Everything there was created. Yeah. You know, it's not necessarily my cup of tea of architecture, but like, I I think another thing that's kind of underrated about it, just in general, is how easy the walk is, given how much space they can like have for infrastructure. Like the green to tea walks are really, really intimate. But yet, like they can build out this infrastructure unlike anything else. And I know, I know from anecdotally, like the tour really advocates for courses to have long walks from green to tea so they can put grandstands in. Yeah. Like this place, like, doesn't have long walks green to tea and it still has all this space for grandstands. Like, and that's something that Dai, you know, he understood building tournament golf, like big scale tournament golf maybe better than any architect that we've ever seen. Yeah, his way of figuring out where people would stand, where they would watch the action from, how they could have sight lines on different shots is pretty much unparalleled. But also his designs, because his designs have really endured pretty well and st- stood up fairly well to, to you know advances. How do you think this is going to compare to a place like Kiowa, or even a course like TPC Sawgrass in terms of the way that it's going to challenge the best players in the world. It's totally different, obviously, because I think it it gives you way more space off the tee. Yeah. This is a golf course that just visually cripples average players. Like, they just can't get over the fact of all those bunkers. That's all they see. They don't see the, like, 60-yard wide corridor that they have. I've, you know, having played it with my father, it just threw him into fits like you know like the that's the thing is like if you're a good player it's significantly easier than an average player because just the visual intimidation so it's wider there's way more space which for these guys is they aren't scared of the bunkers um so it's it's a little gentler off the tee it's longer i guess it's not longer than kiowa uh anymore because of those new tees but it's it's bigger. It's a bigger ballpark in a way. And I think the greens are a little bit more interesting at Whistling Straits than and and one of the things I will say, and this is an important point, is that the penalty for missing fairways at Whistling Straits is huge. And that is something to watch at the Ryder Cup especially in match play because if you miss a fairway, say like the 18th hole is a great example of this matches that get to 18 it is pivotal to hit a good tee shot there because if you don't hit a good tee shot there you're likely laying up back at like 160 yards you know like you're not laying up to 50 yards it's not like one of those spots you hack it out and you get it up close to the green and it's a relatively easy up and down for four like you're making probably a bogey if you miss the fairway there and i think that's the case with the par fives out here too that there's a really high degree of misses out here. And I think all the par fives do it pretty well too. Um, obviously 11 is converted to par four for this competition, but two, if you miss the fairway, you're probably not getting home. And then it's a, it's not an easy layup. Like it's not easy to get to, to a place you really want to get to. If you miss the fairway, uh, the same, I mean, five's like maybe the worst hole is definitely the worst hole on property and doesn't fit the golf course at all. Like five alone knocks the golf course down from being like really great because of how bad five is. Why why is it so bad? Oh, it's just horrendous golf hole. It's like a S fairway and it doesn't work because if you're a long hitter, you just hit it over the S. 
that hole separates a scratch player from a from a twenty handicap better than maybe any hole in America. I mean, you'll see these guys; they're just gonna hit it over everything. Yeah, and it just renders the hole like that's a distance rendering a hole completely obsolete. Well, I mean, that might be one of those holes where Pete Dye thought in 1998. Yeah, hey, this is gonna kind of blunt the advantage of the players who can hit it 300 yards Mm -hmm. but now that we have players who can hit it 350 yards it has been defanged yeah exactly exactly especially if they catch it downwind you know (laughs) it might be different if they get like a north wind um which would make it pretty cold there and then obviously 11's converted but there's huge penalty for miss there and same with 16 16 and and one of the things he did with the par fives is there's these like little extremely penal bunkers in layup areas like little gnarly bunkers like uh on the second hole there's this like almost principal nosy looking thing and i'd love if a ball got in the top of it somehow um <laughs> i hope that happens that's something i'm i'm really hoping for um and then uh yeah so i think that's the thing it's like with the par 4s and the par 5s more so you know obviously like kiwa has large penalties for hitting it into the water but this place has a huge penalty for missing without losing your golf ball. Uh, so what is the number one thing that you think is great about whistling straights? I mean, you're just staring at Lake Michigan all day. <laughs> <laughs> That's it's the main one. Great. I mean, it's incredible. I you, like if you haven't if you haven't been out there, I mean, it's just like it's hard to have a bad day when you're just like walking, looking at a, at a giant body of water on a beautiful day. I say that, but like it, it's true. You know, everybody always wants to say, "Oh, if Pebble wasn't on Pacific Ocean, it wouldn't be a top ten course." Well, let me tell you, it's on the Pacific Ocean. It's right there, and it's pretty great. <laughs> exactly. Like you know, there's like a there's like a threshold of like how bad can your day go if you're staring at the lake all day? Like it's a it's such a beautiful place, you know. It, and obviously, like the catch basins are so awful. Like and and, and those are drainage things and. I don't, you know, I always look at the lake and wonder, I, there had to be environmental restrictions, how they had to drain it. They probably can't drain it, drain a golf course into Lake Michigan. That probably would be So, so for the people who haven't yet gone down the rabbit hole with you about styles of drainage and catch basins, what are you talking about? What is a catch basin? I, catch basins are, are drainage basins, and that basically throws it into drainage, you know, drainage that, you know, think about as golf course plumbing. And that plumbing then takes the water somewhere else. And like, think about water on a golf course as human waste or whatever you want to do. <laughs> you know, so Wait, it, you want it you want to get it out of there. You want to yeah, get it. Yeah, you want to get place. it off the golf yeah. course into another place. So all you, what you'll see, like if you see aerials, if you watch, we're going to put a video together. You'll see these catch basins lining the fairways. Now, if you're art, if you're const- constructing a golf course from scratch what i don't understand they've thought about all this stuff how they're going to build it how do you not just do like drainage surface drainage the best architects drain stuff without you seeing the basins yeah and that's the that's the problem with catch basins is that they show you how the course is being drained you know what catch basins do they collect water and they collect golf balls yeah and you'll see these catch basins in front of hazards so what it does is it stops the ball from going into a bunker and throws it into this catch basin where a lot of balls get into, and then you get all these divots in them. You know, most people don't understand about the real brilliance of, say, Bill Core or, 
or Tom Doak or Gil is how much time they, they spend thinking about drainage and getting the water off the hole in ways that you wouldn't see the water get off the hole. And, and using their resources, they're building, they're shaping, they shape stuff to get water to surface drain. Yeah. As opposed to using catch basin. And then they have to disguise it. They have to tie it in with the rest of the stuff that's there. And that's where the real art comes in because drainage has to be functional. Like it has to make gravity work on the water. But that doesn't always match up with trying to make it look like it belongs there. And that's where catch basins often fall short is that you can see them. There's just this hollow. You're like, that's obviously not naturally occurring. And it kind of takes you out of this illusion that you're experiencing the game in a natural kind of environment or or something that just occurred and was not man-made and a lot of like you know naturally interesting golf sites have drained one way for a number of years and when you move earth what you do is you disrupt it and that's when you need the drainage and and sand helps too sand sand helps a lot whistling straits is not built naturally on sand they imported a lot of sand but that's not really what this site is and as well, like sometimes catch basins are 100% necessary. Mm-hmm. This is something that sometimes is needed. And Pete Dye built a lot of golf courses in places where you shouldn't have golf courses, and catch basins were 100% necessary to build those courses. So, but this is one where if you're moving that much dirt, I think you could have been a little, they could have been much more artistic and um, resourceful when figuring out how to drain the golf course. Yeah. And keeping like the basins affect the play, like water, obviously on the, you want to get, you have to get it off the golf course, but you know, the basins also create an eyesore and create these areas. Like instead of a ball rolling into one place, it, it almost removes the, the randomness of where a ball rolls because it collects it just like it would collect water. Well, all that said, I'm pretty excited to see a Ryder Cup here. You know, yeah, we're ending on such a negative note. You I know, know. About something that people <laughs> we have don't to bring it about. back around here. Most of this podcast <laughs> has been devoted to all the ways in which Whistling Straits is fun. I think keep an eye on the greens at this course. I bet you'll see some interesting shots around there. And then, of course, Pete Dye's courses strategically have always been quite interesting. And so, I think we'll see all of those things come out at this Ryder Cup. Yeah, there's definitely like you know lines of charm out there, and the corridors are wide wide where the advantage of being on certain halves is pretty large, especially with the length of approaches that people will have in. And it, it should just be it should be a really uh, aesthetically a great watch on TV, and uh, it should be I think it it'll translate better as a match play course than it does as a championship stroke play course. Today's episode was edited by Garrett Morrison. Uh, Just as a quick note, as I uh, always say, the newsletter is a great thing to sign up for these days with the uh, Ryder Cup. It is a it'll keep you on top of everything going on. It'll be unique this week. Will Knights writes it for us. Will will be on site covering it as credentialed media. Big, big day for Will. But uh, that newsletter should have a little bit more insight than normal. So it'll be even better than normal this week. And you can sign up at our website, thefriedegg.com, and you'll get three days a week of great golf content. And then during weeks like the Ryder Cup, you'll get a few more than three days a week of uh, free newsletters that 
you know, you're going to be able to impress your friends with all your golf knowledge. So sign up for that at thefriedag.com. And thank you for listening to the latest edition of the podcast.